Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. Things are, they're, they're moving apace. I'm a little behind the eight ball. I have just showered. My hair is going to dry. There is no telling what is about to happen, hair-wise at least. I think you just said what it's about to happen. It's about to dry. Well, hopefully. Which, watching hair dry is less interesting than watching paint dry. Oh, it's not a good, it's not a good activity. But the thing is, sometimes with me, this hair... It dries in a way that I have to start over. I've got to go back to bed and then get up, shower again, and uh, get everything right. I do feel like this is one of the ways in which we are gender role reversed. I feel like you think about your hair a lot more than I do. I really think about your hair. No, it, I like your. I love your hair. No, no, it's yes. it's it's not like that. I'm no. I'm not mm-hmm. focused on it. It's mm-hmm. just that it does crazy things that elicit comments from people. I and... think the comments from the people are the crazy things. Okay. All right. Well, I'm willing to go with. That's them. what I think. I, th- I think they're jealous. Jealous. Mm-hmm. Well, I have I have wondered if some of the nastier comments on YouTube are uh, the result of um, the the bald community rising up against those of us with uh, more than our allotment of hair. That's right. All right. So it is episode seventy five. Spring has sprung here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we were going to start with a few announcements, talk about where we're going today, and then just embark. So where we're going today first before the announcements, we're going to talk a little bit about um, privacy and game cameras. Um, ask if we should be allowing children to transition medically and surgically, a topic that we have returned to over and over again, but it is so of the moment and uh, so important in our estimation that we're going back there. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the FDA approval of a new drug to treat ADHD, Uh, a remarkable finding uh, about uh, how parent intervention affects children. Um, You're going to talk a little bit about a uh, a, uh, kerfuffle between Ta-Nehisi Coates and Jordan Peterson, and then we'll talk about sunlight. Yeah, Yeah. sounds perfect. All right. I believe it is spring has spranged, though. Really? Is is that what you think? It's hanged versus hung when you're talking about a person. Well, you go ahead and think that. All right. Fair enough. All right. Um, announcements. We, as 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 usual, we encourage you to subscribe, to like, to go to our Patreons and and become our patrons there. And um, also, last week we introduced doing ads. We don't have any ads today. We're not going to probably for the rest of this month, but we are going to start doing paid ads. But we wanted to be um, clear in a way that we thought we were clear last time, but maybe weren't about the, the the nature of those ads. One of which is there will always be an audio indicator, both before and after anything that is paid. Um, and also if you're watching on YouTube, there'll be that green border around it. So if you don't see the green border, it is not a paid ad. And, that, and, and for our first time, we spent some time, you know, we spent a much longer time on, on the paid ads than we will in the future, which will just be, you know, a minute or two. Yeah. And I would just say this is really a fail safe measure because the important thing is that we are not motivated to say things that we wouldn't say, um, which means that we have to be ultra selective. And the, uh, the fact that we will only endorse things that we actually think are worth your while, that's the first layer of protection. And the second layer of protection is that you'll know unambiguously when we are speaking uh, from that perspective versus everything else we say. Um, so anyway, doubly protected. Yeah. Well, well, I guess one more thing on that is that, um, you, you know, behind, behind the curtain, something that I certainly wasn't aware of and I'm not sure I'd ever thought of before we were doing this. And when I was listening to podcasts and hearing ads and, you know, I would hear many of the same products come up in ads in wildly different podcasts. Um, and, 
you know, that that's because there's some number of of vendors out there who are interested in advertising on these things. And it's not like, you know, we have we have a private list of um, things that we use that we would advertise for um, that aren't an option because those companies don't don't advertise on podcasts. So um, we are being selective within a rather already a narrow, um, a narrow grouping. Yep. All right. All right. Um, Do you want to say anything more about that? Or? No, I think, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. I just want people to understand, uh, you know, by and large, the reaction was quite positive. Uh, both people were accepting of the fact of us doing ads and um, they liked the the way we did it, where we did a bunch of pro bono ads, both for and against certain products and services. I certainly had fun with that. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, there was one person who uh, was concerned about knowing when we were uh, motivated by, um, by an advertiser to say things. So this is in large measure responsive to the fact that that is a legitimate concern. It's a concern Absolutely. that um, we would share, but it is also important, I think, to say we didn't choose to do this, that this is the result of the fact that our new uh, way of earning a living in the world is subject to um, effective unilateral veto power by platforms means that we have to think about how we approach the world differently. We don't have a salary or a court that we can go to uh, if our employer treats us badly. We are um, functioning uh, in a way in which there's no safety net. And so anyway, I, I just hope people will understand. There's an interesting longer conversation to be had there, actually. You, 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 you caused me to throw an error a little bit when you said we did not choose to do this because obviously at one level, at the narrow level, we did absolutely choose. You know, we could have said no, um, as you know, as we did for a while. Um, but there is, there's sort of a, you know, we have employed this language before over in phylogenetic systematics, the science of trying to figure out um, the deep history of who's related to whom in in evolution. Um, there, you can talk about the sensu stricto, the narrow sense of a term, and the sensu lato, the broader sense of a term. And you know, at, at, in the sensu stricto sense, we of course chose. Um, and you are pointing out that at the systemic level, we are now we are all living in a system in which much of our sensulato level of choice is being restricted behind the scenes. And that's, in fact, kind of a, a meta theme of, of what we are doing here is talking about a restriction of choice while people point out little choices that we're allowed to make and saying, see, you have full choice. Like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, we don't. Just because there's narrow choice, sensu, choice sensu stricto, does not mean that we are retaining the full level of choice, sensulato, um, that we would... Uh, claim to not just hope for, but deserve in a free democracy. Well, when I said uh, that we didn't choose this, I was specifically thinking of the fact that we had uh, what appeared to be secure salaries and jobs, and then our institution melted down in a way that made it impossible to continue teaching there. So we didn't choose for our institution to do that. In fact, we tried to prevent it from doing that. And having had our institution uh, disintegrate, uh, we had to find another way of earning a living. And so I, I don't feel that that was choice. Of course, how we chose to um, to show up in the world uh, as um, podcasters was uh, obviously choice at one level. All right. All right. So you wanted to start um, by picking up on something that you did a, uh, a pro bono <clears throat> ad for last week on talking about trail cameras and also privacy. Yeah, so we did get a comment from somebody that, again, because it resonates with things that you and I feel, I thought uh, deserved um, coverage. Somebody said they hated the idea of trail cameras in nature areas because it was the death of privacy. And you and I absolutely feel this way. As you mentioned, 
last week when we are at field stations in the tropics people very often use these things as research tools and the fact that you happen on a camera and that you know that it captures you has some impact and it's negative mm -hmm. but the value of what is gleaned from these cameras is so immense that we all understand it it makes sense that they are there one of the things that's true at least at, at tipitini the field station in the ecuadorian amazon to which we've referred and where we've spent a fair bit of time um, is that not only do cameras exist as part of an ongoing very valuable research project to actually monitor and um and and describe the charismatic megafauna mostly, um, but there's always a sign before a camera on the trail too. So you actually know before you're about to stumble into um, what's called a camera trap and uh, and get flashed and know that you are thus immortalized. Right. Now I did want to point out though that in the case of what I've been doing, this is not a serious issue because I have been placing the cameras in places that they don't capture people. I'm not placing them on trails that are being uh, used by people. So literally the only people in several weeks now of using these camera traps, the only people I've captured are two people who were illegally fishing in the reserve, right? Mm. So these are people who are doing something that is uh, destructive of nature. What I'm doing, uh, you know, there is some downside to it. I will say I try to uh, compensate for whatever um, the impact of my presence there is by removing a significant piece of trash uh, from the reserve each time I go. Um, the reserve is actually pretty nice, doesn't have a lot of trash, so it takes some searching on my part. But um, you take it out. But the, yeah. uh, the thing is, the camera traps are set in a way as to only capture wildlife, except in the case of these two illegal fishermen. Um, now- You know, no fisherman can be illegal, Zach. Zach, I called you Zach. You did call me Zach. Wow. That's weird. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna move right past it. Um, but the uh, yeah, you've told me that uh, our voices increasingly sound alike. I actually do not confuse you in any way, but pe parents will know that um, in in households with a lot of individuals, uh, the names somehow sometimes get swapped. So yes. Anyway, uh, my my point was just a, a joke on the you know the objection right. that oh. calling people. Illegal immigrants and shortening it to illegals is um, is dehumanizing. Yes, so. uh, these are illegal. Is it pescatarians or is that no? That's to... people who eat fish. Well, presumably they. The, but per, I'm assuming these people eat fish. So, but pescatarians, I think, are people who are vegetarians but also eat fish. Oh, it's I see. Lazy, lazy end of vegetarianism. All right. These are piscivores. No. No, they're fishermen. They're fishermen. All mm -hmm. right, they're anglers. I don't know what they're angling for. Well, I started with the with maybe. the failed language, so now we're just all down right, some. Just, yeah, you go. Uh, yeah. So, all right. So, I did want to show something. So, uh, part of the intrigue of these cameras is that they actually allow you to nail down features of animal behavior that are very difficult to nail down otherwise. And I completely forgot in our discussion last week that I am oddly one of the early pioneers in this field. It wasn't camera traps. Camera traps are now an object that you buy and it holds an SD card and batteries and all of that. But when I was doing my dissertation work, as, as you well know, um, I was uh, working on tent making bats. And tent bats, making- Bats, 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 bats. <laughs> tent making is a behavior that had never been seen by humans. In fact, humans had a misunderstanding about how the bats did it because we the tents were commonly seen and were well described in many cases. 
But the fact that the animals would never do it when a human being was watching meant that people had guessed and they had guessed wrong. So um, I, uh, in part on the suggestion of a friend of ours, John Cooley, hmm. started to use bank surveillance cameras, which happened to be sensitive in the infrared spectrum. And I, I soldered this together. This is back in like the mid-90s. Yeah, in the mid-90s. Mid yeah. I soldered together and I did some experiments. I have some of the crude experiments that I started with. I, I built an illuminator made of uh, television remote LEDs that I strung together. At first, I thought it wasn't going to take very many, you know, one, two, eight, <laughs> ten. It turned out my final design had 247 LEDs. Um, that ne number was necessary to get the voltages right. But anyway, I made an was illuminator. Was that, in fact, the Batbright 2000? That was the Batbright 4000. The Batbright mm -hmm. 2000 was not bright enough. Mm, okay. um, but in any case, uh, so I made the Batbright 4000 and I used these surveillance cameras does. and I hung out in the forest. I And this was in the middle of the Panama Canal. Middle of the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. I was uh, adept enough at finding these tents that I was able to find one that was partially had just begun to be constructed. I was able to tell that a bat was working on this leaf, but that it wasn't done. So this is not the place for a full curriculum in tent pet biology, but I think um, people are imagining like pup tents. Like you, you, there's a, there's right. a whole lot of imagining going on We will on return right to this. I, I will dig up some video and show yeah. it. But um, a tent is a large understory leaf that has been or there's actually one style of tent that involves multiple leaves, but a large understory leaf that has been modified so that it collapses in a very regular way that obscures the bats, protects them from rain, etc. We can talk more about why they do that another time. But anyway, it uh, you know at the point that um, I don't know night shot or whatever it is started showing up on cameras, it was like oh yeah, actually I was doing that you know with that. 12 volt car battery and a bank <laughs> surveillance camera and LEDs from uh, television remotes and all that. But okay, so these things are very useful at seeing things you can't see. I couldn't have watched the Trail bats. cameras are. Yeah, mm -hmm. I couldn't have watched the bats make the tent um, if I had been close enough to see it. I had to be at a distance in order for the bats to do it, which meant that I needed to use some technology. Just to clarify for the non-animal behaviorists, they wouldn't do it if you were right there. Right. You needed to be far enough away that they weren't thrown by your presence. The reason that humans had never seen bats make a tent was not for lack of effort. It was that everything you would do in order to observe it scared the bats off. They're right. very sensitive about it. So anyway, I would do it at a distance. And in order that I wouldn't just leave a light there in a regular camera, which would also disturb them, I used infrared light, which they can't see. So anyway, that's the basis of these, these trail cameras now. Um, so let me just show you some of the things that we've captured recently. Zach, do you want to show the uh, first of the um, – no, no, not that one. Um, show, the, uh, oh, show the beaver one. So I set up a camera on a um, – on a uh, burrow not knowing what of several animals were inhabiting the burrow. Yeah, um, so show this one. So this is not the primary animal I see associated with this burrow, but that's a very clear image of a beaver entering this burrow. Um, it's just like showing off his tail in case you were at all wondering what was going on. Right. Now this camera shoots both day and night, um, and so that's, Wait, that's infrared. That was last night. That was April 10th, it said. Yeah. Like 2 a.m. Yes, uh, it sends me videos. Um, okay, now show the second one from that burrow. Now here, 
That's interesting. I was not expecting to see this animal here at all. That was an otter. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was not a beaver. At the same entrance. Now, I don't, though, that was also night. Now show the uh, diurnal one facing the other direction. Um, now, this is the animal that I thought was responsible for this burrow and that I expected to see. This is a nutria. So a nutria... And you're sure that the second one that you showed was an otter, not a nutria? Absolutely. I, just, I, I haven't can, looked at you it can except tell, for what you just showed. You can yeah. tell because the tails it's fluffier. are radically it's much, different. Yeah. It has a like a triangular... The otter has a triangular-shaped tail. Mm-hmm. The nutria has a rat-like tail. But and it's, the beaver but it's has conical. the unmistakable yeah. flat tail. Like, conic, otters have like a conical, a conical tail. tail. Right. Yeah. So A, this raises all kinds of interesting questions. You've got these three species... Now, the nutria and the otter, I, and the nutria and the beaver are probably uh, close competitors of each other. The otter being a carnivore. So the nutria and the beaver are both rodents. Um, and uh, Probably insectivores, though. Oh, well, I know beaver's not necessarily, no. but uh, nutria is probably an insectivore, no? I don't think I so. Don't I don't think so. But in any case, very odd to see them sharing uh, a burrow. Nutria is invasive here, which we will get back to. I think this is also a very interesting question. And then the otter, which is native here, it's a river otter, of course. Um, although in the Puget Sound, the otters, even though it's saltwater, are river otters. Mm-hmm. Uh, off the coast, they are sea otters, which are quite different. But in any case, it's very interesting to see these three species of large moderately large-bodied mammals sharing the same burrow system. How are they interacting? Uh, how much conflict is there? I mean, they're well, interacting is there, underground. You know, are they are they sharing or are one or two of them exploring? Oh, occupied. Nope, not for me. Move, al- move along. You know, that's obviously uh, an exercise in um, exploration that organisms that do use burrows engage in. Sure, but I'm virtually certain that's not going on here because... Right. Uh, I set this up. That this it's actually a burrow system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are like five or six entrances that I've found to these burrows, and I set up on the one that looked to be the most active. But it's quite clear: a, these cameras would have seen the animals retreat had they done so quickly. Mm, um, my guess is they although they could have gone at a different entrance, right? But all these animals: a, they weren't tentative going into the burrow; b. What are the chances that I happen to capture them exploring all at the same time? I set this up, and in the case of in the in a matter of two days, I saw all of this um, activity, and so this seems like just regular activity. It doesn't seem extraordinary. Um, all right, so a mixed living burrow. Yeah, a mixed living burrow. It raises interesting questions. It Somebody does. may know the answer, but yeah. and in any case, it, this is the way actually good um, field work goes: is that everything you discover just starts raising questions, and you can imagine what those questions would begin to unfold uh, like if you were, you know, involved in disser- dissertation work rather than just, um, you know, curiosity, as is the case here. But all right, mm-hmm. let's let's um, get back to the question of the nutria. You and I had this discussion uh, a couple of nights ago. The nutria are invasive in uh, in Oregon and increasingly in much of North America. They are um, neotropical rodents. And there's something surprising about the fact that they are successful in invading, which mm-hmm. is that almost everything that is tropical 
would be limited by climate and unable to invade temperate habitats because even if they would do fine in the summer and maybe spring and fall, the winter would be too cold and it would kill them. So what is... Put another way, temperate habitats tend to be uninvasible by tropical organisms, um, but the inverse is differently true. Well, let's put it this way. The the great ecologist MacArthur... um, uh, famously, he was an ornithologist, famously observed something that I then, uh, not knowing that he had said this, rediscovered in my trying to figure out why there were more species as you got towards the equator, which seems like a question we should all know the answer to, but strangely is one on which there is not yet a consensus, though I did advance what I think is the right answer in my dissertation. But in any case, what MacArthur said was that species tend to be limited on the northern end of their range by climate and on the southern end of their range by competition. So, and he was talking with a northern hemispheric bias. So, that, so put that more generally, species are limited at the more at the end of their range towards the poles by uh, competition, and at the end of the range, no, other way. Uh, at the end of the range, towards the poles by weather or climate. By climate, yeah. Um, and at the end of the range, towards um, the equator by competition. By competition, exactly. So, what the heck is freeing the nutria to um, to invade North America? And you and I had a discussion in which I think we came up with something quite useful, right? So um, your point, I think, was that... I, I asked you um, whether or not it was about it being aquatic, that that basically um, a largely water-dwelling organism might have the variability in climate in the temperate zones somewhat mitigated. Somewhat and mitigated. And thus be able to invade at least farther into the more extreme, um, t- you know, towards the pole end of its range. Right. Yeah. So uh, just to make that clearer, water mitigates weather. Because water has such a high specific heat, water tends to cause a reduction in fluctuation of temperature. So the coasts tend to be more stable than inland, which tends to be much more variable, etc. And so you suggested, and I think this is part of the answer, is that places, that because these are always found near water, these are semi-aquatic rodents, they spend a lot of time swimming, and I'll dig up some pictures of them swimming around at some point. But um, the uh, the fact of them living in habitats that are always near water mitigates the weather somewhat. But I also wonder, and we talked about this too, whether the fact of them being in the water itself doesn't drive the evolution of their capacity to preserve heat in a way that other creatures that simply near live near water wouldn't. Exactly. Because water is so good at robbing the body of heat that every animal that lives in the water has mechanisms you know, uh, beaver, no, uh, otter pelts, for example, are incredibly mm-hmm. dense, right? They effectively are, function like a wetsuit to, to allow the animal to trap heat. So the water, the aquatic environment may both be mitigating a variability in in climate and also lead to a robustness, which could even be an anti-fragility with regard to extreme climate. Right. So this leads to uh, that's a hypothesis about what's going on. It's two hypotheses. Two hypotheses mm-hmm. uh, that are consistent with each other. They're not mutually exclusive. Yep. And it leads to a clear prediction, which is that when animals invade uh, habitats, which they are expected to be limited by climate, that they those that invade are more likely to be aquatic creatures mm-hmm. than terrestrial creatures. But then it also raises another question, which is, if the nutria does so well um, 
in this habitat, why wasn't it here in the first place, right? Why did it not migrate north? And it could be a, um, it could be that it is a, uh, hmm. I'm not well, sure. I've got, I've got one. You got a hypothesis. So, um, you know, you you used to present, um, and I always used this when I got to the relevant parts in my um, in my curriculum. Uh, a sort of a, a three pronged set of answers to why isn't organism X in habitat Y, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this in such a way that we could drop that and let people think about it and then do it at the end, but given that we're in this conversation. Um, Broadly speaking, the answers were um, organism X um, can't exist there, can't live there, can't get there, and can't compete there. So can't live there is like just unable to function in the environment because of, say, a climatic um, barrier. Can't get there. There's some kind of a barrier to dispersal, perhaps. And that would be, that's, you know, that's the one I'll come back to here. It's possible that humans need to get over, say, the Sonoran Desert. I don't know. I have no idea what all it would have had to get over. But it might be that Nutria couldn't get here on their own. But once here, here they they clearly can live here. Maybe they couldn't get here, but they clearly can also compete here. Yes. And so the competition is against organisms in similar in the similar niche. Um, so that so, that three pronged set of answers, I think, is super useful. Like you know, if if God, if ecology curricula taught that and only that, that would be it. Gets you a long way. <laughs> gets you a very yeah, long at way. At least one of yeah. these things has to be preventing any creature that isn't in any habitat. Yeah. I will also point out that our habitat is now heavily modified by the totally. elimination of things like the natural predators of many creatures mm-hmm. and so and uh, fire suppression you know all right. sorts so of who things. knows it, yeah. something has been altered but there is at least a set of interesting questions that follows from the observation that these animals are now here and doing great and they really are doing great mm-hmm. um even though climate climatically one would expect them to be hobbled which they are apparently not yeah all right and final thing on this i want to switch from the nature reserve to our backyard and show a couple things that are mm-hmm. cameras that we've set up Uh, as we attempt to fend off a nightly threat by uh, a small number of coyotes that are persistently here. We've got three coyotes who desperately want to eat our cats. Yes, they are. They are failing, but not for lack of effort. They are clearly stalking our cats. Our Mm -hmm. dog is very eager to take them on. I am not all that worried about her. She has, in fact, tangled with coyotes physically, individually. Yep, I'm and I mean, in fact, I saw that uh, within the last week with one, and then saw that there were other two, the two others were waiting. Like, and, and we're out of here. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we are now quite concerned because we have a number of animals that it's quite possible Maddie cannot uh, fend off. And mm-hmm. in fact, last night, um, the we went out. I always take her out before I go to bed, and uh, we encountered the coyotes, and she was going to go after them, and I tried to grab her, and I um, because these. You know, these animals are stalking our cats. Um, we've been carrying some bear spray so that we can send them a strong message that will dissuade them from doing this. And I accidentally <laughs> sprayed Maddie and me <laughs> as I was no. trying to stop her. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, yeah. That's terrible. No, it was really bad. Um, but okay, so Zach, do you want to show the... Uh, Incidentally, our cats have not got outside since since these coyotes have been right here for like two well, weeks. The, and so the they're coyotes, going crazy. The coyotes... Um, call and it isn't just the three here that all of the coyotes in the surrounding area call and they've been doing it every night for the last several weeks except for the last two nights where i've put a recorder out hoping to capture it and so anyway they're yeah. shy somehow but yeah. Zach, do you want to show the no, uh, they're on to us they're not shy yeah show show the first one 
So this is just one of many videos. Ah, so what I want you to, can you show that again? What I want you to see here, I noticed last night in the interaction uh, that Maddie and I had with these coyotes, I noticed for the first time that this animal appears to have one eye. Now, it may be that it's lost an eye. For those listening rather than watching, um, you see the eye shine of just a single eye. A the single eye shine eye. is the reflective coating at the back of nocturnal mammals' eyes called a tapetum lucidum. Yeah, so the reflective coating in the back of the eyes actually sends the photons through the receptive layer twice to mm -hmm. amplify the light, yeah. which is why we always use headlamps to find nocturnal animals. Yeah, you, shoot, you, you shine a light beam close to where your eyes are, um, and you're going to pick up eye shine of any nocturnal mammals. And also, it turns out, you know, <laughs> when you're in the neotropics, so many spiders. A lot of spiders. Oh, my goodness. But in this case, um, we've been watching these animals. We've seen them every night for weeks. Um, I've not seen a one-eyed animal until last night, at which point I saw this one-eyed animal, and then it showed up on our cameras, which raises the possibility yeah. that this animal got an injury, that it got a thorn in the eye and that its eye is going to heal, but it's closing its eye, mm -hmm. that this is a different animal that has one eye. Yeah. Don't know. Um, but for some reason, a one-eyed uh, coyote is now showing up uh, on our cameras and in person when we see them. Um, so that was one of the interesting things. And we have dozens of videos of coyotes in single, multiple, uh, all around our house. Show the other one. This was another interesting one I did not expect to see. Oh, this is two coyotes. You can see an eye shine in the back of the um, the back of the video. Oh yeah. See, there's an eye, and then this other animal is carrying what is pretty clearly a squirrel. Um, and that, can you read the time stamp on that, Zach? That's the date. That's the stamp. date. Twenty four hour time. Is it twenty? Oh five, maybe. Yeah, it's uh, so eight oh five. Eight oh five. So, eight. Oh, wait, that's not possible though, because it's not twenty oh five on April tenth yet. Oh, well, it may be the date yeah. may be off on the camera, but in any case, this is this is clearly at night. Mm -hmm. This is not dusk. This is clearly at night. Yeah. Yeah. So, so eight oh five doesn't make sense anyway. It's that's dusk here at this point. There's a question about what squirrel. Twelve twenty seven. Okay. Twelve twenty seven a.m. Yep. So, just after midnight. Mm -hmm. Um, so what squirrel was that? And how did this coyote get it? Yeah. Right? Because I mean, all, squirrels are pretty diurnal. Well, all except and, the flying squirrels. Boy, so we, we are big enough fans of flying squirrels. And we had some, <clears throat> some years near our house in Olympia and watched them and are just, you know, we're animal behaviorists. We love flying squirrels. I feel like if there were flying squirrels near here, we'd we would be likely to know. Well, and I'm, we do. There are a couple of fewer squirrels than any place else we ever live, but there are a few squirrels in some of the trees nesting near us. And you know, maybe maybe the fact that the coyotes are taking them is why there are fewer than anywhere we've ever lived before. Part of it. Um, I am certain we have flying squirrels here. The reason. So the couple of times that we saw them in Olympia, mm -hmm. it was the same phenomenon, which was the squirrels, for whatever reason, were in a battle with each other, which caused them to vocalize. The thing about flying squirrels is when they don't vocalize, they can fly, they're not uncommon, but when they fly over your head, you're very unlikely to know that it happens. They fly yep. from a branch to a tree trunk. So it's and not just, like- And just to be clear, they're not actually flying. They don't have powered flight. They can't get left unless they catch a thermal between trees, which is pretty unlikely. Yeah, I mean, I always, I wonder about, you know, climbing a tree to power your flight seems to me like powered flight, but That seems anyway. like a semantic argument. It is, but so is the argument that they don't fly. But anyway, never mind. They, 
they glide. But they're not flying over your head. They're gliding over your head. They glide, but they have yeah. a very impressive glide ratio. They can go a long distance, yeah. and their landings are perfectly silent because they're on the tree trunk rather mm -hmm. than in the branches. Yeah, they land vertically, right? Yeah, they yeah. they land on the tree trunk. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like you, you know, with monkeys, you typically hear the leaves rustling when the animal moves before you, you know, sometimes a long time before you figure out where the animal is. You know there's something mm -hmm. over there and it's got to be of a certain size. In this case... Actually, I think, I'm not positive, but I think actually the vertical grasping and leaping that is characteristic of the arboreal locomotion of the group of lemurs called uh, the Indriids, the Shafox and the Indri, Indri, are also somewhat quieter than the um, than the leaping around in trees of say neotropical monkeys because they're doing this thing yeah. that I, I used to um, demonstrate for students but I'm not going to get up and do it here now um, that is really it's throwing themselves from vertical bowl from vertical tree to vertical tree um, and they land sort of in this position um, that it yeah. is a bit quieter because in part because they're not interfacing with foliage right they're just interfacing the with shaking the, of the with, foliage is the thing right. that, that gives animals away so anyway I know that we have flying squirrels. I don't think that was a flying squirrel. I think the tail was too fat. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see the light underbody, uh, underbelly. Um, so anyway, I think that was a diurnal squirrel, which raises the question of how a coyote is coming up with a diurnal squirrel at 1230 at night. Is it finding them? It can't climb. It's a coyote. Yeah. So... Yeah, so we've, and incidentally, we've gotten a tiny bit of pushback in the past. Like, of course, dogs can climb. My grandma had a dog that could climb, famously. Um, but, you know, canids um, compared to felids actually just can't. And again, sorry for the people just listening, but uh, this, this action of pronation uh, is limited for canids. So cats are great at this. And, and that ability to basically move your radius around your ulna is what allows climbing. Um, and so if you're limited in this position, if you cannot pronate because your radius and ulna are effectively locked in, in position much more so than they are in, say, the, the felids, um, then your climbing is going to be very much restricted because you, because you cannot grasp. So in light of all of that, there's mm -hmm. some mystery here. How did this coyote end up with a diurnal, seemingly a diurnal squirrel, which right. presumably uh, nests high in a tree for exactly this reason, mm -hmm. right? So anyway, I think that, that probably we are going to be unable to answer this question. Um, be interesting if somebody who was expert on coyotes had some sense about whether this was a fluke, could be an animal that, you know, died and it was found fresh and the coyote didn't turn up its nose at the already dead animal. It's possible, but I think it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, I also will say, though, that I am... Uh, now spurred to try to use these game cameras to find flying squirrels. Mm. So I'm going to see if we can't nail down our flying squirrels and document their presence here. You there. don't want to actually nail them down. No, no, no. I, it was a figure of speech strictly. Good. I'm mm -hmm. a, I'm a liberal. I, I, I resonate with the flying squirrels. I don't want to see them nailed to anything. Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> All right. Um, are we there? Yep. I think we are. Okay. Um, so, uh, apropos uh, the movement that is happening in many, uh, many state legislatures in the United States right now to limit the ability of children to medically and surgically transition, um, and specifically... Um, the state of Arkansas was the first to, to, do, to do this a couple of weeks ago, and the ACLU and what is becoming its 
generic, knee-jerk, frankly, uninvestigated stance, um, said, you know, trans youth will be denied health care. And it made it seem like all healthcare, like if you show up with a broken arm and you're trans um, and you're 16, you would not get your arm set, um, which of course is not true. And so I mocked the ACLU as has become the thing that I do on Twitter um, by rephrasing their um, what they said accurately. And actually, maybe I'll just um, show this or read this. What I said was, um, here actually, um, the ACLU said, breaking, Arkansas has become the first state to ban health care for trans youth. I quote tweeted them and said, breaking, Arkansas has become the first state to ban gender transition procedures in people under 18. And the ACLU has become the first organization to wildly misrepresent what has happened. Someone, um, and you don't need to show this, Zach, but someone with a fancy PhD and a lab of their own said, quote tweeting me and, and thinking, I think, that he had schooled me, uh, gender dysphoria can start around seven years old and includes a link. And in fact, includes three links. Um, and I could, I could tear all of them apart, but I'm just going to talk about one of them and what it led me to, to think about here. Um, so the one, the, the first paper um, <clears throat> that he links to, excuse me, is this one. I'm going to just show this quickly. Um, this is a research letter in um, JAMA Network Open, um, published last year uh, by several authors, called Age at First Experience of Gender Dysphoria Among Transgender Adults Seeking Gender-Affirming Surgery. Okay, so that's it. Um, and I looked through it, and it does indeed find, assuming that it's doing an accurate job of describing what, what it was looking at, that um, some people who transition later in life start saying that they are trans at a very young age. Um, okay. Yep. That's, I believe that. Um, I mean, I would, I would be shocked if that weren't true. In fact, in fact, it has to be true. It, it has to be true, right? So the missing piece of the research, though, the idea that that research is in any way a rebuttal to my implied claim in what I, in what I tweeted, and I'm going to talk explicitly about what my implied claim is here, um, the thing that is missing from that as an argument against giving medical and surgical intervention to, um, to children is how many children who do not later transition say the same thing. And we, in fact, have probably no way of knowing that. I would love those data. I would love to know. And you know, we'd, we would basically have to survey um, widely across all children and ask parents, you know, did your child ever say something like, I'm a boy or I'm a girl and it wasn't their natal sex? Or did they dress up in mom, you know, did you do find the boy in mom's heels one day? Um, and, you know, any number of sort of gender nonconforming things that are now taken as evidence of, of transness. And absent that, Absent knowing how many people, and I will posit that I am certain, but I do not have the data and I don't think it's possible to get the data again, that um, a much larger number of children, of course, make such claims because make-believe and playing with identity and exploration is exactly what childhood is about. So the fact that some people who do later transition make claims early on is not evidence that we need to be supporting their transitions medically and surgically. And here's why. Um, I would ask, which error does society prefer that we make? Should we intervene at an early age with experimental and known to be unsafe medical and surgical interventions such that a large number of non-trans adults are mutilated, both physically and mentally, for life? Or should we fail to intervene at an early age with experimental and known to be unsafe medical and surgical interventions such that a tiny number of actual trans adults 
come to be a slightly less good fit for their internally perceived gender. So we can use the language of statistics here, I think, quite usefully. Uh, and some people will actually be better able to make sense of the landscape this way. And certainly people like this um, this professor um, who thought that he had made a, uh, a killing blow at my argument should be able to do this kind of logic. Um, this is going to be the language of null and alternative hypotheses and the kinds of errors that can result, that is to say type 1 and type 2 errors. So the null hypothesis, which is the also called the default hypothesis, in this case is that you are not trans. That if you are a child, the null hypothesis is that you're not trans. The alternative hypothesis is that you are. Why is the null hypothesis that you're not? Oh, 500 million years of uninterrupted sexual reproduction in human history and overwhelming evidence that a deeply felt disconnect between your actual sex and your perceived sex is extraordinarily rare. We have said on this podcast and elsewhere many, many times that we understand trans to be real and exceedingly rare and that a majority of what is going on right now in the, names of, in the name of trans rights is not actually about actual transness. So the null hypothesis is you're not trans. Type 1 errors, when they occur, um, are that you have rejected the null hypothesis even though it is true, also known as a false positive. In this case, in the case that I am talking about here, you reject um, a type 1 error would be assuming that you are trans even though you're not. And the societal ramification of such a type 1 error would be encouraging transition even for those who do not turn out to warrant it or want it. Compare that to a type 2 error, uh, which involves rejecting the alternative hypothesis, even though it is true, also known as a false negative. Okay. In this case, the one that we're talking about right here, a type 2 error would be assuming that you are not trans, even though you in fact are. And the societal ramification would be, again, preventing people who do turn out to be trans uh, from transitioning early in life. So given, given that, we've got two types of errors, type 1 errors and type 2 errors in this landscape of people who aren't trans and people who are trans, and we have childhood and a long period of development, and how can you know early on and what should you do? Given that the background rate of trans people is exceedingly low, I think actually that it is our human societal responsibility to minimize type 1 errors in this case, to drive to as close to zero the number of healthy children harmed by medical and surgical intervention for two broad reasons. The sheer numbers of people who are going to be harmed by medical and surgical intervention um, is so much larger um, than those who are harmed by failing to surgically or med medically intervene, fully aside from whether or not the medical or surgical intervention itself is, is a healthy thing to do. But just looking at the numbers of people who are and are not trans, the number of people who will be harmed by intervention when it was not called for is so much higher. And secondly, intervention, and to, you know, to, the, to the later point, intervention in this functional ancient system, when no demonstration of the safety of that intervention has been made, goes against all that at least I understand to be moral and right and in fact just. For me, this is in fact a matter of justice. And I think that in fact reframing Try, trying to get the narrative back and reframing some of these issues is actually, you know who is on the side of social justice for populations like children and, you know, and, and women is, is those of us who are saying you are redefining things and you are misunderstanding statistics and you have taken a, you know, a radically deficient data set to try to make a point in which you are actively harming people whom you have no right to harm. Not only people that you have no right to harm, but we are talking about a population of kids who show some sign of dysphoria, right? 
that group presumably includes some trans people, people mm-hmm. who will persist in their dysphoria, yep. and it includes presumably many people who whose dysphoria will clear up. We know that that's a common pattern. So the point is, actually, that group, kids with dysphoria, need protection from medicine that would surgically alter them, thereby eliminating their potential to reproduce as adults, uh, risking their sexual functionality as adults. And so the point is, if you are interested in protecting kids with gender dysphoria, it is incumbent on you not to provide this surgery in light of the fact that um, that many of those kids will not grow up to be trans adults. And so by doing the study in such a way that you are looking through the lens of, of those people who were trans as adults, many of them believed they had just gender dysphoria as children, you are looking at the wrong it, the wrong data set, as you point out. Exactly. And um, it's simply, there is no justification for policy. Even those who ultimately go on to be trans as adults cannot have known that their gender dysphoria would be permanent as children. And in light of that, that group, gender dysphoric kids, needs protection so that they have the full range of options when they grow up. Exactly. And, you know, true gender dysphoria is is a tiny subset of those people who are gender non- nonconforming. Um, and gender nonconforming kids is a subset of people, of children, who are just exploring identity, right? And, um, and you know, I would hope that actually all children are exploring identity. I would hope that that, that is, uh, you know, a perfect, that sample is a perfect match for the population that is children, some children aren't able to, or maybe they just don't explore, you know, and certainly a lot of kids don't explore over in gender identity space. Um, it's not inherently interesting um, to everyone. But the idea that um, all you have to have done is to um, be different from the societal norms, frankly, from the 1950s, right? Um, to in some cases be pushed into something that will permanently alter so much about your life is should be criminal. And in fact, what we are seeing are these, you know, once, once necessary powerhouse organizations like the ACLU, who are turning this on its head, and who are defending the, you know, the right and therefore this sort of this, you know, this steamrolling of, of modifying children for permanently. Because really, you know, increasingly now we're finally seeing, but you know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, people were still saying, well, you know, there's no, there's, there's no harm. Just, you know, block them. Just, you know, put them on puberty blockers. It'll be fine. And then that allow them to figure it out. It's like, well, A, if you're on puberty blockers, nothing about your development is now normal. There's no figuring things out as if things were going along normally at this yeah. point. Um, but certainly certainly you're going to have effects like, and we already, we, we've gone through all of these, but, you know, physical, mental, psychological effects, fertility effects, you know, all, you know, sexual function effects, all of these things. So um, I don't know uh, if you're where you were headed with this, but I do want to make clear why you and I both think it is inevitable that you will have um, some fraction of trans adults uh, who experience gender dysphoria as kids and why, therefore, we need to be very careful to draw any conclusion at all from the fact of that group existing, right? So in other words, it it seems important. Well, if there are people who know that they're trans when they're young, then why not, you know, get them on the road to whatever adult role they're going to play as quickly as possible? But here's the problem. Even if your 
uh, gender conforming or non-conformity as a child and that same parameter as an adult were completely independent of each other, 100% independent. Some small fraction of people would flip the coin the same unusual way twice. And so it is inevitable that you will have a group of adults, given that there are trans adults and given that there are gender, uh, there are dysphoric kids, mm -hmm. some number of people will have been both, even if there were no implication whatsoever. And the fact is there probably is some implication of your dysphoria as a child and dysphoria as an adult. So, so of course there is. I mean, like, I, I, I get your point and I think it's, you know, it's, it's true, but I think like, of course it's going to be a core. Of course, if you are a trans adult, you are more likely, um, to have shown dysphoria as, as a child, but, um, you know, dysphoria and gender nonconformity are Im imprecisely and often inaccurately assigned. They are conflated. And there will be plenty of people with one or both who do not turn into being trans people as adults. Right. Um, totally agree. The reason I'm highlighting this is that the there's a Monty Hall pro, uh, problem buried mm. in here, oh. which is going to result in people upon mm -hmm. the discovery that some people apparently know from a very early age that they're trans when that's not really what they know. They're dysphoric as young people. And it turns out that they, yep. at the point that they are in a position to judge, are trans. Um, uh, but it does not have any implication whatsoever for how we should treat those young people because it isn't – as, as right. long as the category of people who were dysphoric and don't go on to be trans as adults is a sizable fraction, they deserve protection and you cannot act, especially in light of the fact that even if transition is more successful, if you start early – Right, it is still yep. successful enough if somebody, upon you know reaching eighteen or twenty years of age, says, "Yep, I'm trans." At that point, right, they still have options, and so protecting kids from permanent modifications, and as you point out, even the hormone, even the puberty blockers, are permanent modifications because of the way they interf interface with development. Mm -hmm. Is it has to be prevented? Yep. All right, so. Um what may not appear at first to be related, but the next thing we want to talk about, I feel like is exactly, you know, demonstrates sort of the coherence of our worldview with this evolutionary lens, <clears throat> which is that um, the FDA, uh, that is the federal drug, the Food and Drug Administration here in the US, um, a, has approved a new drug to treat ADHD, which is a tension deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Um, so let me just show First, um, the, this is the diagnostic criteria for ADHD, okay? Um, and actually the hyperactive impulsive type diagnosis, because that's what we're talking about. Squirms when seated or fidgets with feet and hands. Marked restlessness that is difficult to, difficult to control. Appears to be driven by a motor or is often on the go. Lacks ability to play and engage in leisure activities in a quiet manner. Incapable of staying seated in class. Overly talkative. And it goes on. Um, when we were teaching, I occasionally, probably at least once every quarter that I had a new group of students, sometimes more than that, I'd have some very smart young male student uh, come to me having failed to turn something in on time and ashamed would explain to me that he had ADHD. And I started to say to these smart young men, of course, that's the diagnosis. 
you're a smart young man. Like this be, this became this be, it became predictable. And that does not mean just and I actually feel like this is a this is a really good map for for trans. Like I believe that there is something at the edges. Um, that is real mm-hmm. and that there are people who actually will benefit from some kind of intervention. I don't know that that intervention exists yet for ADHD. I don't think it's this new drug and I don't think it's the old drugs and all of that. But I do think that there is a real thing. And like with trans um, and possibly for some of the very same profit motive reasons by the pharmaceuticals, it has become this huge thing in which the vast majority of parents who think that they're only caring for their children are trying to take care of their children and it certainly makes their jobs easier and the teachers jobs easier if instead of a classroom in which a quarter of the kids are bouncing off the walls and um, and having a hard time sitting down when they're told to they're now basically drugged into quiescence well that does make your job easier doesn't it um, but it also means you've drugged your children and indeed from the CDC I found another line um, under the hyperactivity variant which just cracked me up um, this is one of the diagnostic criteria from the DSM for ADHD. Often leaves seat in situations when remaining, when remaining seated is expected. Expected, right. The problem is clearly with the child who's driven to get out of their seat. Exactly. So I, again, um, I'm just, because this came up on, on Twitter this week, um, I was directed to this article um, that got put out, um, and you can put it on the screen if you like, Zach. Uh, I said, hey, look, new drugs to fix broken children. Maybe the environment in which so many children find themselves. Um, oh, sorry. Maybe the environment in which so many children find themselves a bad fit could be altered rather than altering the children to fit the environment. And there was a lot of good positive reaction to that. And some people who think I'm Satan. Right. The idea that I am against drugging children and instead think that maybe we should create school environments that are a better fit for all of our children and not just the um, smart and middlingly smart girls, which frankly is what school is mostly a pretty good fit for at the moment, um, is apparently a bridge too far. Well, uh, the perverse incentives here are uh, many, and I have no doubt that many well-intentioned people have ended up um, allowing their children to be drugged and the cognitive dissonance required cannot withstand the scrutiny of someone who points out that a child getting out of their seat uh, is hardly an indication of a disorder, especially in light of the fact that seats themselves are now the root of many a disorder that we now recognize. These are not healthy objects. And... um, What's more, yeah, the same society that is celebrating standing desks right. is drugging children because who don't stay keep their, their butts in seats. Right, exactly. It's, right. There's something off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would also say that the system we have built is so clearly guaranteed to produce an outcome where I agree. I don't know whether ADHD is real, but I suspect that it is. I know for sure I would have been diagnosed with it 100%. if um, it had been a thing when I was a kid. Um but I, you know, I, I think we've got a novelty problem, which is to say, uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all good. Wow. Um, that's some serious cat chaos we there. Had a, a cat quake. Um, thanks Zach. The, uh, <laughs> as I was saying, <laughs> the, um, 
They, they're going is, bonkers from being locked inside for two weeks. Let's imagine for a second that they're, you know, in the fantastically complex uh, series of events that have to unfold in order for development to work out properly. There's something that causes a certain, a small number of children to be hyperactive and not be able to focus on something, right? Then there is a question of, okay, what do we do about this tiny percentage of children? And the answer is, oh, well, we've got a lot of drugs we can try. And then it turns out that drugs that have really powerful effects, many of them have some interaction with this because, of course, they would, right? And so you find some drug like speed that happens to do something with these kids that actually paradoxically, as many things, as many pharmaceuticals work with children, it, you know, calms them, right? It's effectively functioning as some kind of sedative, right? And then what happens next? Okay, you say, well, this is the drug that treats that as if it was a specific interaction rather than just something that has massive effects across the brain, one of which happens to look positive, especially in light of the uh, jury-rigged system in which the drug companies test whether or not something has a positive effect. It's not a tight hypothesis-driven science, is no, it? it? No. It, it, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not hypothesis-driven, if you know what I mean. Um, but... Then the question is, okay, once you've concluded through whatever, you know, uh, it's effectively a kind of idea laundering, not of the typical kind, but uh, idea laundering where you make some drug out to be the solution to some problem that you vaguely understand or at least can recognize, then the question is, okay, how many kids might have it? And mm -hmm. what do you think the drug company's desired answer for that is? I think it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a really large number. This is wildly undiagnosed. You don't want your child to be sick, do you? Right. Oh, what do we have to do? Well, you know, maybe, you know, Johnny doesn't appear to have uh, ADHD, but maybe he's got ADHD type B, you know, this kind of, <laughs> right? So you just... Did he stand up when you didn't want him to stand up? I saw him standing. I did too. Yeah, when he was sharpening his pencil, mm. right? And that's what he says. Right he before doing. he sharpened his pencil, he got out of his seat, which is one of the diagnostic characteristics. Uh, yeah, that Johnny, he uh, he's clearly an ADHD type. Yeah. B. We can fix him though. We oh, can yeah. fix him right good for uh, you. We'll fix him good. So one of this, so just this article <clears throat> that I linked to in that tweet um, says, "quote," and I have no idea how to pronounce this. Kelbri with a Q is apparently the name of the new drug. Uh, I mean, it's being um, lauded as not speed, right? Like not speed to treat your ADHD kid. Kelbury, developed by Supernus Pharmaceuticals of Rockville, Maryland, carries a warning of potential for suicidal thoughts and behavior, which occurred in fewer than 1% of volunteers in studies of the drug. Short-term studies of the drug in which we're being told that these children are going to be on it for many, many years. So right. that 1% is low. And I'm sorry, and, you know, less than 1%. I don't know what the number is. I couldn't, I couldn't track it down. But um, you're creating suicidal ideation in a population that had none. I'm sorry. That's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. 1%. Because they get out of their fucking seats. Right. 1% is a huge number. Right, so yeah. yes, this is it less says than fewer, one, fewer. Right. But yeah. the point is, you know, it it's not fewer than one in a thousand, right? <laughs> this is a large number, as you point out. It's a large number in a short period. So, does that mean that as you put people on this long term, you're going to cycle all of them through suicidal ideation? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Which which we know happens with many of the other drugs. Um, so the neuroleptics and antidepressant meds that are on the market already. And this is more, this is closer to that class of drugs uh, biochemically than it is to speed. And, you know, you, you alluded to this uh, in your introduction to this topic, but 
there is a chronic condition, undiagnosed in my opinion, in which society takes all of the problems that we are causing by inflicting novelty on people and then falsely diagnoses the person as disordered and then seeks to treat them for profit, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you know, it's a racket. And yeah. um, it's not to say that disorders don't exist. They clearly do. And of course, they exist at a larger, uh, a higher rate than they would otherwise because people do grow up in a, an environment that is chemically, socially, and in every other way uh, novel. We probably, we probably do benefit far more from drugs than would our ancestors have had they been available because we have created so many problems with our environment. Yeah. Yeah. Your mm -hmm. ancestors, because they were a good match for their environment, would almost never have benefited from drugs. You know, you've got right. the occasional circumstance of somebody getting an infected um, yep. limb where an antibiotic might might help them or something. But well, and I, you know, not you know, we we don't need to straw man, uh, you know, Western medicine, right? Because it it, it's, does it, it it does it plenty well itself. Right? <laughs> like um, as we have said here and elsewhere for decades. We have long viewed antibiotics and vaccines and surgery as the three major triumphs of Western medicine, and all of them are overused. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're anti-antibiotic or anti-vaxxers or anti-surgery, except in some situations, of course, because there's some situations that don't call for antibiotics or vaccines or surgery, and there are a lot of things that would benefit from a different approach entirely. I am anti the pretense of safety. Mm. Right. The fact is all of these things have dangers, just as we know that every single drug has a lethal dose. They're all toxic. They have to be in order to function, right? For them to be physiologically interactive mm. means that there is a dose at which you um, are doing harm. So the recognition that all of these things are unsafe, and instead of having a stupid debate over whether or not they're safe, having a debate about how unsafe are they, mm -hmm. and therefore, when is it worth taking that risk and when is it not, would be well well worth doing. And, what, and w w both about the risk and then about the, the benefit. Like, you know, who, who, what percentage of people are actually getting what level of benefit when they take this drug? And what percentage of people who take this drug are actually suffering cost? And what is the level of cost? And um, with with something like this or, you know, with, with, something, with a lot of drugs, that actually should be an entirely individual decision. Yeah. Vaccines is trickier. Vaccines um, is trickier. Um, but, you know, even just our family has so many stories in which we have come to ultimately understand that we were exposed to risk we didn't know about. From yes. the orthodontia that I had as a kid, your uh, Achilles uh, tendon repair, uh, my hernia. It wasn't hernia. the repair so much as the rupture that really got to me. Well, that's the thing. Both <laughs> the, but no, both no, the right. rupture and the repair. No, the surgical it. repair has it still plagues me, um, what is it, seven, six years later? And something. it turns out that yeah. this is something that will heal on its own without surgery, mm -hmm. right? Which was something we did not understand fully at the time. Yeah, to, to be explored more later. In my case, it turns out not only was it a complete rupture, but even the sheath in which the Achilles tendon runs was ruptured. So it's not actually 100% clear in my case that it would have healed. Like when the sheath remains, but the Achilles is totally ruptured, it it, it, repairs. It, it repairs, but without the sheath to guide it, it's not clear what would happen. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll return to it another time. Yeah. But uh, even just for a small family to have at least four instances in mm -hmm. which um, iatrogenic harm, that is to say medically induced 
uh, harm is evident uh, because of the enthusiasm of doctors and dentists. Well, I don't think we spelled out that with regard to the Achilles rupture in the first place, it was probably, uh, it was almost certainly affected by and maybe largely driven by the fact that I had taken a fair bit of Cipro uh, when we were doing a lot of field work, both together and independently um, in our 20s. And Cipro and the entire uh, class I don't remember what that that class that drug class name is right now. Um, of drugs is now known to cause soft tissue, specifically ligament and tendon damage. Yep. Yep. No, but right. there's, there's no indication then. No. Just take Cipro if you you know you need to get on a bus for twelve hours and you got GI stuff. You need to take Cipro. Yep. Uh, all right. So um, this next one. So we got three more topics here. Um, this next one is, is brief, but I actually think it sort of wraps up this, you know, talking about medically um, medically intervening uh, with children who declare themselves trans, medically intervening with children who have been diagnosed with ADHD. And here we go. This isn't about medical intervention, but um, the organization Let Grow, which was founded and I think is still run by um, our friend, the amazing Lenore Skenazy, um, tweeted about this paper, which is not showing up. Hold on. I will find it on. Um, I will try to find it and I don't. Okay. Well, uh, Princeton dropped me out, so I do not have that paper up anymore. A paper called um, Children Persist Less When Adults Take Over. Uh, published in Child Development, just published now, and I will put a link up, although um, it looks like you'll need to do some fancy work behind the scenes to get it without university. Um, just to just to say what they've found, it's, it's a pretty good paper. It's, it's, um, it's social science, and they do three se separate sets of experiments, and uh, this paragraph from the discussion um, aptly summarizes what they've done or what they've found. We found that when adults take over and solve hard problems for children, children persist less. First, we showed that parental taking over negatively relates to parent report of child persistence. Yeah, it's not so interesting, right? <clears throat> then, the second two experiments they do. In an experimental study, we demonstrated that taking over causes children to persist less on a subsequent difficult task. And finally, in a second experimental study, we found that changing the language and context of taking over slightly but not significantly ameliorated the negative impact of taking over on children's persistence. And in the following paragraph, they say, our findings suggest that it may be easier to demotivate children than to motivate them. Which I thought that was sort of the crux, and that we can, you know, you haven't read the paper, but I don't think I don't think you need to. Basically, what it says, and what Lenore says in, in tweeting this, Lenore Skenazy, um, it's like, well, you know, duh, this should be obvious. But so much of modern parenting style is about intervening, is about getting in the way of normal childhood and normal childhood development. And in this case, it's not about drugging; it's just about a parent watching a kid struggle in a small way with like a puzzle or a task. And in those cases where the parent's like, let me just do it for you. Or let's just forget about it. Let me show it. you how to do that. Let me show you how to do it. Let me do it for you. Let's just forget about it and move on to something else. All of those um, are, you know, are dem demonstrably resulting in children being less likely to persist in later tasks that are hard. They become less, um, less interested in difficulty. Yeah, and uh, as we both discovered and um, thought quite a bit about in our teaching lives, the failure of motivation is the key factor in the failure of education, yes. right? A, 
a child who comes to understand that a problem can be solved and that being uh, dogged in pursuing the solution results in ultimately getting there. In other words, a relationship with the failure that comes along with progress mm -hmm. that is healthy is the key thing. And even for students who appear to be doing very well in school and therefore you would expect to succeed uh, when they get out into the world, if what they have learned to do is to succeed in order to please the person at the front of the room, then at the point you remove the person at the front of the room, the person does not know how to accomplish anything. And these things are devastating. And if there's it, no carrot, what am I doing? Right. And it doesn't even add up that way. It's mm -hmm. like the whole idea, I guess the point is you've got, it's like a almost a military mindset, right? Where the soldier might be very good at doing what they do, but they do it because somebody has ordered them. That's mm -hmm. the hill you're going to take. And to the extent that that's the educational model, then the point is, okay, well, this may be great for producing people who will do what their boss tells them to do, but it's not great for teaching people how to innovate and solve their own problems or even recognize their own problems. Again, it probably makes the educational environment easier to deal with right? Especially if you've got some unruly kids, some people who are unmedicated ADHD types, right? Um, they're more likely if they are trained to be motivated by the teacher's approval or by being, you know, being given a task and, um, you know, having it be pretty easy um, and knowing that you'll be moved on to the next task and you'll get another star stamped on your forehead as a result. Um, those, you know, those classrooms are certainly easier to navigate, um, but they don't produce independent, autonomous thinkers with agency, nor, I think, what we are seeing in the world, nor do they produce people with particular amount of compassion and respect for people who don't look like them. Yeah. Like that, that, that is actually what we are seeing is that the people who are yelling loudest um, over in Wokeville are actually the least compassionate and the least respectful of people who don't sound just like them. Yeah, I think this is exactly... Uh, right. And I think I was going to draw the same analogy for a different reason, which just has to do with the fact that we are interrupting all sorts of processes that are about figuring out how to navigate the world, right? Mm -hmm. By telling people, oh, you're having trouble navigating the world, that's because the world is fucked up, right? Now, the world is fucked up. But when you tell people the reason that you're having a problem is because the world is fucked up and therefore it relieves all of the burden on you to figure out how to interact with the world, then you don't learn how to interact with the world. What you do is you demand that the world be bent to, to fit you and mm -hmm. that is not viable. The fact is no matter how bad a world you've been born into, right, you absolutely want to figure out how to make the best use of it, no matter how unfair it is that you were exposed to that world and maybe other people aren't exposed to that same level of dysfunction. Nonetheless, it is absolutely clear that your best investment is figuring out how to make the best use of the world as you find it and then demand that it be fixed. But don't demand that it be fixed instead of figuring out what to do about how to interact with that world because you're not going to get anywhere if you're waiting for, you know, effectively utopia, which is what mm -hmm. so much of this is about, right? We, we're, we're not going to do anything until you've fixed every last ounce of every problem that we've named. And it's like, well, that world isn't coming, nor, nor could it exist. It's not a plausible world even. Yes. So um, you're harming yourself by, um, you know, by stamping, you, you know, effectively we've got a generation that's stamping its feet you know, in the aisles of the market demanding stuff, right? And, uh, well, 
It's yeah. a, a disaster. As, as Nancy Rollman has said many times, uh, they have demonstrated a clear ability to break things, um, but we are still waiting on a demonstration of their ability to make things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, an excellent way to put it. All right. Well, we've got two more topics here. Uh, Brett, you wanted to talk about um, what is going on, and I know almost nothing about this. Um, so you are going to take the lead on yeah. this. So I just wanted to point out, and I think, Zach, I sent you a link. This is just one of many places um, that uh, this show, this is a Newsweek article um, describing what has gone on. Jordan Peterson discovered... Can you show um, it on the big screen too, Zach, since I haven't seen this yet, and I can't read it there. Um, so Jordan Peterson discovered this week that he was clearly, I would say, being parodied um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates um, in Captain America. Effectively, uh, Peterson's 12 Rules for Life has been changed to 10 Rules for Life, and um, Peterson himself is being analogized to a arch-villain, Red Skull, who has Nazi overtones. And this is noteworthy for a number of reasons, right? Um, it's literal villainizing, right? Peterson... Actually, literally. Right. Literally being villainized here. And I would say, you know, Jordan is a friend. He deserves nothing less than to be villainized. He may be wrong about things, though I would say it is incumbent on anyone who says he is to point out in what way he's wrong. But being wrong and being a villain are two very different things. And uh, I have seen Peterson interact up close with his many, many fans who come up to him. You know, he could have lines out the door of people coming up saying, you changed my life, you helped me find direction, you helped me uh, get myself out of a hole that I was in, increase my capacity. All of these things are things that are commonly being said to him. So the idea of turning him into literally a cartoon villain is so insane uh, as to be absurd. But it's grotesque. The other reason that I wanted to mention this is that we are constantly asked why we only supposedly interact with people uh, who agree with us supposedly about things like wokeism. And I don't think this is true, um, but it is true that we interact mostly with people who agree with us on this. And part of the problem is it's very on hard. This topic, so yes, on this topic. Yes. It's very hard to find people on the supposed other side of this topic who can be partnered with enough to even have a reasonable discussion. And so for my part, I have been saying for quite some time that I find Ta-Nehisi Coates to be a very different sort of person than Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo or any of these other folks. Mm -hmm. We as a family read Between the World and Me. Back in, um, would have been fall 2016, 2016. right before the school year started, I read it aloud to to us. I certainly got a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. I thought it didn't have exactly my perspective, but I learned about uh, Coates' perspective, and mm-hmm. I believed it was a, a valid and valuable book, and I have said so publicly. And so, therefore, Coates exists in a separate category to me, somebody who could be productively interacted with mm-hmm. and somebody who brings something to the table that I think is worthwhile. And so, uh, in any case, some of the people, you know, uh, um, 
John McWhorter has given Coates a very hard time, as has Glenn Lowry. But in any case, it sort of feels like Coates was the person for to to whom we could address critique and yeah. receive critique from. But what are we to do when the reasonable person on the other side of the discussion starts villainizing somebody, literally villainizing them as some sort of a Nazi-esque, uh, you know, figure? There's just nothing to do, right? So in any case, I don't know well, what... Well, I'm curious what the 10 rules for life that Red Skull is espousing are. I'm wondering if, you know, you know, one of the more famous ones from 12 Rules for Life, because I, I read it, I, I, I thought it was a, a powerful book. And, you know, it wasn't, it was, I wasn't the target audience for it. And I think, and actually I think Katie Herzog said this um, first, <clears throat> but I had the sense of like, okay, I don't need this in the way that I know a lot of people need it. And I didn't learn as much as many people did from it, therefore, but I see its value. And I was I was deeply touched by it. And I did learn some things as well. Um, but you know, one of the one of the rules in the original 12 rules, and of course he's got another book out now with 12 more, uh, was uh, when you see a, a cat on the street, pet it. <laughs> Just I'm wondering if there's a, a modification of that in here. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> so. Skull. I think that one was... When you uh, see a cat on the street, feed it to a coyote. Carefully excluded uh, from this uh, portrayal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what I did see was the suggestion that uh, the Jordanian Red Skull character was leading young men to believe that everyone was against them and that they needed to rise up, that kind of thing, which oddly is almost exactly like inverse yeah. uh, with what Jordan's message actually is. Jordan's Clean message, up your room. Right, Jordan's message is about um, taking responsibility for your position in the world and not concentrating heavily on... Uh, other people get, you know, don't compare yourself to them, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, that kind of thing. Yep. And so anyway, deeply unfair to do this to to Jordan, who I must say, um, uh, despite uh, significant differences in viewpoint, I find him unendingly decent. Absolutely. Right. Um, so anyway, what a terrible thing to, to do this. And frankly, um, I do think you owe Jordan an apology, Coates, and uh, I can't. It's hard to imagine, in light of having released this, that you're going to deliver that apology. But um, you know, what possessed you to do this? Right? Yeah. All right, that's about all I've got on that topic. Okay. Um, you. So for our final topic today, uh, maybe sunlight really is the best disinfectant. Uh, and I don't know much more than you sent me a link to this article, Zachary. Sunlight inactivates coronavirus eight times faster than predicted. We need to know why. And that links to this paper, UVB radiation alone may not explain sunlight inactivation of SARS-CoV-2, um, a paper that came out actually in February of, of this year that finds that basically the theoretical underpinnings for why um, why it was thought, thought that SARS-CoV-2 was not transmitting as, I guess, was not transmitting and was not therefore manifesting as COVID in people who were outdoors was um, largely based on a model around um, UVC, I think, deactivating um, deactivating the virus. But um, the empirical evidence that's come in since those early theoretical predictions um, says, actually, no, there's got to be a lot more going on. <clears throat> this virus is just unable to persist out in sunlight for very long at all. And, um, you know, we're not going to 
we're not going to go inside baseball here on on you know all of the reasons, all of the disconnects. Um, but it's fabulous news. Like there is not a variant yet that we have heard of SARS-CoV-2 um, for which this is not true. That is to say, which does not. Um, deactivate in sunlight, which means that the advice that we've been giving from the very beginning, go outside, spend time outside, and, you know, and, you know, do you do not need to wear a mask outside unless you're jammed together, um, holds and is, you know, is even, it, it's important for mental health, it's important for physical health, it's important at just about every level possible. Yes. And uh, so I want to recap a little bit about what we've Different. said. A, SARS-CoV-2 does not appear to transmit outdoors. That could be a purely UV light or sunlight more generally based phenomenon, but it isn't. It doesn't appear to transmit outdoors at night either, right? So that's really important. What that means is that you've got uh, at least two mechanisms and that what it results in is, at least for the time being, that we have a loophole in the constraints that come from SARS-CoV-2, especially when the weather is hospitable and meeting outdoors as possible. Um, and we should be taking full advantage of that. You wanted to say something. Uh, well, hold on. Um, the, I mean, one obvious second explanation, and I suspect there will be more than two, is that it is well understood that this, like, I don't know, maybe all, but certainly many, and I think most, uh, viruses and other pathogens are effectively density dependent. And so outside where there is airflow and where you're constantly blowing away boundary layers and, um, you know, the, the virus is, you know, heading up into the atmosphere as opposed to staying in the room where you are, uh, is going to be um, effective at effectively dispersing the virus. Well, we know this to be the case. The question is, is that the mechanism that makes uh, night safe outdoors? Um it is unlikely that that is completely the explanation. So, I said I said one one clear hypothesis that I would say I can't imagine that this isn't true. And right. I just wanted to name the two that we definitely know are true. Right. We know that, that, that the volume and airflow reduces mm -hmm. the density of particles that one interacts with and that that has a highly protective effect. And we know that uh, UV light disables the virus and maybe sunlight does so more generally than just its UV component. Why is an interesting question whether mm -hmm. this um, interacts with the question of where uh, SARS-CoV-2 came from, if it was laboratory in origin. Obviously, uh, laboratories are not drenched in sunlight. They are drenched in artificial light. Of course, the fact that the virus ultimately comes from bats, whether it was modified in the lab or not, does suggest it would not interact terribly frequently in daylight as bats are all nocturnal. So anyway, there's a lot of questions that could be uh, addressed. But um, A, could it evolve to be transmitted outdoors? It could. So we should be cautious outdoors, though not overly so. Mm -hmm. um, but for the moment, it is apparently the answer to how to keep things functional um, during a time when you can't afford to do certain normal things like, uh, you know, go to a concert. Um, so in any case, it's, uh, it is an important <laughs> finding and it is important for us to continue to track whether or not that changes. But the fact that no variant yet has, um, has figured out how to transmit outdoors is great news. It sure is. Yeah. Um, Okay, before we go into end of you know sign-off announcements, uh, you want to show the thumbnail that you chose for this week, which is um, from a little photo essay that you were working on yesterday, perhaps? Yes, well, I'm <laughs> trying to get decent pictures 
of these uh, these here animals, including our epic tabby Fairfax here. So this is a little bit um, this is a little bit confusing because I keep saying well, our cats haven't been outside in two weeks. Um, we specifically, the two of us, let them outside just um, right outside our house with us on them the whole time um, because they were crying. It was such a beautiful day and they were crying, crying, crying to come out. So, yep. um, and, you know, and we wouldn't, our Tesla, our 10-year-old cat, the black cat, uh, kept wanting to wander off and I scooped him up four times and finally was like, dude, you're not listening to the rules. And as soon as we scooped them all up, we saw a coyote. They were yeah. watching. They're watching, and of course, we run the risk of uh, renewing the smells that they leave outdoors, and that could reinvigorate the coyotes. Um, In Tesla's case, his failure to listen to the rules, I'm fairly certain, is indicative of ADHD type C, cat variety. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have no doubt that there are pharmaceuticals available Mm. to treat his condition. So um, I did actually... um, get him high on catnap recently, as you know. And uh, Fairfax, the epic tabby who was just on screen, was somehow not aware of this. And so Tesla and uh, and Moxie, our other cat, uh, enjoyed their little foray into cat high. And um, I guess they told Fairfax about it, though, because uh, a couple of nights later, Fairfax had figured out how to break into the cabinet and got him and all of his friends high, and they were rolling around um, being completely stoned for the evening. So. Yes. Um it's a constant battle to, um, to keep, keep that cat out of the drugs. Keep the cat out of the drugs. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So we are going to take a 15-minute break uh, for those of you watching and then go to the live Q&A, answering questions you've posed during the Super Chat. Uh, we did a practice run of our Super Chat replacement system this last week, and we'll do one or two more before going live. So we're still doing Super Chat. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention is I, I had a wonderful conversation with Bridget Fetessy this week, um, and that's up on Walk-In's Welcome. We talked a lot about vaccine passports, among other things, something that we have not really talked about on air. So um, go look for that if you're interested in that conversation. Uh, do consider joining us at either of our Patreons. Um, you get a free monthly two-hour Q&A, live Q&A with us at my Patreon, and um, Brett has conversations at his as well. The next one at the highest dollar amount is tomorrow morning, actually, from 9 to 11 Pacific time. That is evolution-focused. Evolution-focused. Um, please send any questions to darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com, as well as logistical questions like, how do I do this? Um... Yeah, maybe that's it. We've got a great clips channel um, that's continuing to um, turn out clips. And if there's anything that you really want to clipped, um, consider emailing again, gmail.com and they will forward that to uh, the awesome person who makes the clips. Yes. Subscribe. Don't just like. Love. And um, don't hesitate to spread the word. We uh, feel strongly that the platforms are not necessarily allowing people to... Uh, see our content or not recommending it the way they might in light of certain patterns. But anyway, you can counteract that by uh, pointing people to Dark Horse content. That's right. So we'll be back in 15 minutes. In the meantime, love the people whom you love actively and eat real food and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>